on a VIP episode of Hero Paranormal Podcast, broadcasting from the base at La Madre Mountain, just south of Area 51, my name is Ryan, the original outlaw of the airwaves, bringing you, well, a heck of an episode tonight. Epic. I have been wanting to have this person on for a long, long time. Zach Vanek, film and television writer, director, and producer. His features include the indie darling Jupiter Landing from 2005, the award-winning auto racing film Daytona Dream in 2010, and the romantic comedy Three of One Kind in 2013. Two of his original feature screenplays have been optioned in 2020, giving him a total of seven film and TV projects now in development. Four of Zach's original television productions are available on Amazon Prime, including Southern Influence comedy satire Sweet Caroline and the sports-based spoof Coitus of the Week. Those two projects were officially selected by 19 U.S. and Canadian film festivals. The list goes on and on. Zach's first novel was published when he was 12, and he began his professional journalism career at 14 as a sports writer for the Anchorage Times. He won the Alaska Press Club Best Columnist Award at age 17, and the Grantland Rice Scholarship to attend Vanderbilt University. He won several national awards for investigative reporting and is known for breaking the Sherman Ranch story in 1996 while working for the Deseret News in Salt Lake City. Zach is also an astrologer and a founding member of the punk rock tribute band Ramones Alive. He has had award-winning articles published on cattle mutilations in New Mexico while he was on a variety of amazing cases, but he really rocked the cattle mutilation information circuit with his contributions. Award-winning journalist, writer for the Deseret News, he broke amazing stuff on the Old Sherman Place. And the Deseret News did all kinds of amazing stuff, which even dug into Dugway. But Zach got into contact with the Shermans in the Uinta Basin, and what took place afterwards is nothing short of amazing. Zach was working on a script, The Devil's Ranch, last I heard. I can't wait to hear more about that and if it's still happening. If you're new to Hero Paranormal, check it out. HeroParanormal.com. You can go there, check out the archive. I'm not really into self-promotion. If you like it, throw me a buck or two. If you don't, move on. I'm totally kidding, but I'd love your support. Without further ado, I don't like to waste time. Zach, welcome to the Hero Paranormal Podcast. Um, I'm super excited to talk to you today. have a ton of questions. And uh, how, how's everything going? How's the slow burn apocalypse treating you? <laughs> it's good. Well, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I, I'm in a good position because I was in LA for a long time and I actually moved back here to Virginia. I'm living in a, a cabin that my grandparents bought in 1969. They passed away now, but it's a great place to write and it was vacant. And I'm so glad I made the move when I did. I primarily made the move because, you know, screenwriting in LA, which I've been doing for a while now, is not always that lucrative. And when my youngest daughter decided to go back to college, 
about three years ago now, you know, I, I had to, I went back to work to a real job uh, for a little while for, uh, for Fox Sports, um, just working part-time writing the ticker that comes across the screen. And I realized after a while that basically I was just, you know, I was trying to support my daughter. I was also paying high rent in Venice Beach, which I love. I love Venice. I lived there for three years. And I just realized, you know, there's no point in me being in L.A. anymore because most of my jobs I'm getting on the Internet anyway. The producers and directors I'm meeting, I didn't even meet in person. This is before the pandemic. I'm, I'm not even meeting with them in person. So came back home here, and I really enjoyed it. And then I was so glad I was here when the pandemic broke because I'm very rural. And, you know, my oldest daughter is in L.A., and she's doing fine. But, I mean, it's just I'd rather not be in L.A. at this time. I'd rather be in a very isolated place, which I, you know, I grew up here, and I never really thought I would come back. But now, at this time in my life, it's really appropriate, I think. Uh, I live on the banks of the Shenandoah River, about 70 miles from uh, Dulles Airport, D.C. So, you know, before the pandemic, I could get up to D.C. It's an hour and a half drive and feel like I was back in civilization. But uh, for the most part, it's uh, it's pretty rural and pretty lazy here, and I get to watch the river, and it's pretty cool. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> that is so great. Kind of, sir, you 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 kind of sometimes end up back where you start, and that is great. And. Um, I wanted to discuss some of the strangeness that your amazing career has kind of you've you've dabbled a little bit by accident or by on purpose. It's just, you know, in New Mexico, in Utah, you've had some interesting investigations that put you in some pretty amazing places on some pretty amazing cases. And could we get into some of those, maybe go back into New Mexico and uh, talk about the cattle mutilation cases that you got yourself uh, you were just right in the middle of? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a real quick, uh, real quick, hopefully, background uh, on me. I think, um, you know, you talk about coming back here. Um, this is actually, I guess, where my interest in, in UFOs and the paranormal in general uh, started. Even though it's fairly rural here, um, I've got to give credit to my fifth grade teachers because they got us all together. This would have been, I'm 58 now, so it was probably 71, 72 Somewhere, you know, a couple years after the movie came out, they got us together in the cafeteria and they showed us uh, Chariots of the Gods, which uh, just really opened my eyes. And I was just really hooked and intrigued at that point. And then I think, um, you know, uh, we moved on to Alaska and I actually got my first job as a sports writer for the Anchorage Times at age 14. And I was really into sports and, and did work sports for quite a long time. But then when I did move over to news, which was primarily due to the fact that I got married and we had a kid on the way and my wife didn't want me work until midnight, which actually really didn't change once I moved over to news because I was working a lot of overtime. But I think once I got into news, which actually I came back here in 1990 to Virginia as the uh, bureau chief for the Shendor Herald, and uh, it was kind of, uh, you know, uh, boring, to be honest, to write news after writing sports for so long, because sports is fun. And so I think as I got, as I moved to New Mexico in in 91, um, you know, I, I had always kind of, done my own investigations, like when I was in college at the University of Oregon in uh, 87, there was a report on the TV news there about this guy in Sutherland, Oregon, who had claimed uh, to be in communication with Bigfoot, and they took him to Venus, apparently, and so, you know, I saw this news report, I'm like, oh, i got to go meet this guy, so I went down there, and I was really disappointed, he was a nice guy, but he's an older gentleman, kind of simple, and his whole story was very simple, and it just didn't add up, it didn't make sense, and I just really realized that, you know, guy just wanted attention and he got quite a bit of it from other people. So I kind of went away kind of disappointed. Um, but you know, there, there were a lot of Bigfoot sightings in Oregon and stuff. And I was there throughout the eighties. Anyway. So when I got to New Mexico, um, I went to the Santa Fe, New Mexican in late 91 as the assistant sports 
sports editor and did that for about a year and a half. And then my managing editor, Rob Dean, who has passed away now, but he's very cool. Uh, he really liked my writing and he asked me if I would move over to news, which again, at that point, my, uh, my now ex-wife, I got divorced in 2004. She was very supportive of me uh, becoming a news writer, not having the late hours of the sports editor who always got off work at 1 a.m. And when I got off work that late and drove home to Pecos, where we lived because we couldn't afford to live in Santa Fe, Pecos is over in San Miguel County, a good 35-minute drive away. I used to listen to Coast to Coast, Narco, and Moulton and all that. So anyway, Rob Dean asked me if I would become the county reporter. So I covered Santa Fe County for a full year basically um, 93 to 94, I guess. Uh, and then so early 94, he asked if I would become the enterprise reporter, which was really the most prestigious uh, spot of the paper because you got to work on whatever the big story was, right? So I worked on uh, Indian gaming because that was a hot topic at that time. The Pueblos there in northern New Mexico were trying to get compacts with the government. I did a series on uh, poverty and hunger in northern New Mexico, which was really eye-opening, and just how many, especially uh, older residents, just really didn't get enough food, and, you know, it's very rural there, and and so that was a really interesting story I thought was worthwhile, and then, so in that time period, and that was uh, summer of 94, uh, we gradually became aware, and I was trying to remember the other day, uh, really one thing, I was going to do this, you know, what the what the initial report was, and I think that the Taos paper which was north, north of us, I think they were twice weekly. I think they had some articles about UFO and mutilation sightings, and I know Linda Moulton Howe was investigating some of those, and so I don't know if I heard about it on on Coast to Coast first, or I don't think I don't think Rob came to me. I think I came to Rob and said, look, this is going on. We should, we should do an investigation. But basically, I, I did a couple of stories there in um, August or September uh, where I went up and talked to some of the ranchers. These were small time ranchers who, um, you know, might have eight to 10 head of cattle. And if they had one or two mutilated, you know, that was their profit and how are they going to feed their family? So for us, it was, you know, Rob was okay with it. Hey, this is important. These people are, are being ignored. Nobody's doing anything about it. And so we finally decided, he said, look, I'm going to give you two weeks and just see what you can find out. And we'll do a big like expose kind of thing. And, and that's what we did. In fact, I've got the article sitting here now. I still have a copy of it. Um, and it basically wrote about eight different stories, and I also put together a timeline of cattle mutilations in northern Mexico. What, what we discovered was that uh, that I wasn't aware of fully. I mean, I kind of knew that there were cattle mutilations. You know, I was aware of uh, Snippy the Horse or Lady the Horse, whatever you want to call her, in 1967, which is known as really the, the first animal mutilation that was in uh, Colorado that really was highly publicized. And then part of my um, investigation in Mexico, I found a guy who was six years old at the time, right around in 47, the time of the Roswell incident, where his dad was a rancher, and he had a mutilated cow that had, you know, the rectum cord out, all of that, everything that you would expect from a, a so-called classic uh, animal mutilation that happened in 1947. So that's one of the things I, I discovered. You know, it had been going on, but people really weren't talking about it. And another thing that happened in uh, New Mexico, that you know, there was a rash of... Uh, Calculations and UFO sightings and black helicopter and all that stuff that was going on between 75 and 80, the same time it was going on in the San Luis Valley of Colorado. Uh, and what happened at that time is um, some uh, there was a senator, I believe, a state senator at least, who had asked for an investigation, and there was a government-sponsored investigation. They hired a former FBI agent, Kenneth Rommel, and some people are familiar with this, the Rommel report that uh, he was paid $44,000 to investigate uh, cattle mutilations and 
you know, and I, I talked to Ken Rommel at that time, which, which was 14 years after his report came out in 1980, because it was 1994 that I was doing these series of articles. But his conclusion was that it was predators, scavengers, and insects, like, like the blowfly. And, they, and, and he even said, and he said, he told me in 94, I've got an article here, that he was blaming the ranchers for not watching their cattle. And, you know, but complete BS, in my opinion, uh, and the opinion of all the ranchers and just about anybody else. But but effectively, that determination by Rama, I don't know if it was that or if the activity really disappeared, but there really wasn't much happening after the fall of 1980. His report came out in the summer, I think June of 80. And then we had some reports in my investigation that uh, that our paper at that time, the house paper and the Albuquerque paper, had put out in late 80. And then there really wasn't much mention of cattle mutilations or UFO sightings in uh, northern New Mexico to any great degree until 93 when they started to happen again. And by the time I was writing in 94, there were 46 classic cattle mutilations over an 18-month period in northern New Mexico alone. Two of them had happened to primarily to two ranchers. One um, had 2,500 head of cattle. The other guy had 3,500 head of cattle. So you know, one guy had like 15 and the other guy had eight or 10. And, and then, and then the others were scattered throughout. We have a map that, that showed where they were. So they were, you know, as effective as they had a lot of cows, but still, uh, you know, that adds up. And, and they were, they were very rural. I mean, these, uh, and they were a hundred, a uh, hundred miles apart. The two ranchers were, were, the, were mostly on uh, government land, you know, that they had leased. And then it was the independent ranchers that were really most effective because by proportion, you know, again, one out of, and cattle being mutilated, that's, that's your profit right there. So, um, so I did a whole series of articles and really enjoyed that. It was really, it was really fascinating. And, and there was a lot, um, there were a lot of, uh, interesting aspects to it. I'll, I'll tell you real quick. You can ask me more, but I'll tell you about one case real quick mm-hmm. that happened, uh, right around the time my articles came out. And then, uh, and then when I found out about it after the articles, you know, people start calling it. And there was a guy named uh, Larry Gardia who was a carpenter, and this was up in fairly rural northern New Mexico. And, and I got this information from the sheriff's deputy, and I forget the county, but there were 12 counties in northern New Mexico, but he, um, he went on the record and told me what Larry Gardia had told him. And basically, um, Larry was bear hunting, and he came across, came to a fence, and there were some cattle on the other side, and he noticed that one cow was lying on the ground, and the rectum was cored out. You could tell that. So it was kind of a classic mutilation case. And then right after he saw that, he noticed um, a group of about a dozen other cows that were running away quickly, far away from that cow. And then he noticed that next to the mutilated cow, there was another cow who was on its knees and bawling, like sort of paralyzed or whatever, uh, you know, wasn't moving. And then, um, and then he saw that there was another cow I believe it was a calf, but it was being what he described as being pulled through the air by um, by a beam, not a light beam. He didn't see any light, but it was like a sound beam, like he likened it to the sound that a welder's torch makes. And so he saw this cow being lifted, you know, I think like a foot off the ground, maybe two feet, not very high off the ground, but moving through the air. And the cow was complaining, but it wasn't able to move other than its head, I guess. And so he kind of freaked out, and he, and he took two shots towards the sound. And then the sound went away, and the calf dropped, or the cow dropped. And then Larry just took off because he was freaked out. And then he came back later with the sheriff's deputy, and they found that the mutilated cow with the rectum cord out was still there. Um, 
but the other two cows were well. The the one cow, the cow that was in the beam of sound, dropped and ran with the rest of the cattle. So Larry saw that. But the one that was on the ground with with it on its knees, that one they never found again. It just disappeared. So I thought that was pretty interesting, though. The sound beam uh, was was what was so interesting in that case. And a wel- welding torch, it's freaky. That is just like the freakiest story ever. <laughs> well, I'll tell you another freaky one real quick. Um, so <laughs> this happened uh, This happened to me and, and my wife. Um, we lived in Pecos in an A-frame house that was actually owned by uh, the guy who was the, I guess the food editor is what he was, uh, entertainment and food, I think. A uh, really cool guy named Poncho, white guy named Poncho, and uh, he um, he rented it to us really cheap. I, I don't think I would have been able to survive at what they were paying me uh, in northern New Mexico at that time because it's so expensive. And my wife didn't work. We had an infant daughter, and um, this infant daughter was um, breastfeeding, and so she was born in Virginia before we left. And um, so I used to my job was to get up, you know, every two hours and go to the crib and bring the baby to my wife and she would nurse it and I put it back and I've you know, got very little sleep and was working a lot of hours. Well, so, so what I'm saying is I was easily awakened about every two hours. So one night, it's like four 30 in the morning and I woke up and I thought, Oh, you know, baby must be crying. Must be time to go, you know, but the baby was asleep and Susie was outside on the deck. It, it was made by a very small two bedroom house. So there were just two bedrooms upstairs and there were uh, little decks, second floor decks that were, you know, they were like four by six. It was just enough to maybe put a chair out there and just go open the door and go catch a breeze, basically. And so she was out there, uh, which was rare for her. She, we never really went out there. I was like, you know, what's going on? She said, come here. And so I went out there with her and we listened for a while and couldn't see anything, but off in the brush. And we were, it, we're in the middle of nowhere. Uh, in Pecos, Pecos National Wilderness is, is bordering this property. We're at 8,000 feet, right? We used to get about 300 inches of snow and I could barely get my car out to get to work on time. So middle of nowhere. And, um, there was this, I describe it as a, as a droning sound. It was just kind of like kind of mechanical, but not really, um, kind of like maybe a car revving, but not really uh, at all. And it was consistent. So it kind of within about three seconds, it would go high and then low. And it was just, it's like nothing I've ever heard. And I can hear it in my head right now, even though I can't describe it very well. But it was the most peculiar thing. And it really wasn't far away from us. I would say maybe 50 yards because, you know, 10 yards out, you were into the trees uh, from our property. It was all just wooded and, um, there's nothing over there. And then I went over there the next day to check it out, but we listened for about 20 minutes and I was trying to remember what, I think we just eventually went back to sleep because we both needed to sleep. I think it was still morning, you know, a couple hours, probably get up at six thirty or seven. Uh, it was gone, but it was, it was a droning sound, like nothing I've ever heard before. 4.30 in the morning, middle of nowhere. Um, just not, of this world, not anything you would expect. And there was no explanation for it. And again, I walked over there, saw nothing. Um, but you know, and it may have been a little further back, but there was nothing further back. There was nothing. And and the reason I, I mentioned this in part is because this was before I started looking into all these stories. And, and, um, I did end up doing some stories, uh, about mutilations that had taken place in Pecos. And there was one in particular that I wrote about, 
about a horse being mutilated in 1988. So it was six years before this happened. And they were just right down the road from where our house was, just on the other side, in also a very secluded uh, little subdivision in the woods. And then in that article, I uncovered the fact that the the deputy or the um, the marshal, the town, so basically the police officer, the town marshal for the town of Pecos, which at that time had I think around a thousand residents. He and most people were ranchers, you know. That's just kind of the life there. And he had had a couple uh, cattle that were mutilated, and I and I couldn't reach him, but the mayor of the town I spoke to, and he and he confirmed that 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 was something that had happened. And there were also the people who had the horse mutilated in '88. Also found later that there were. Three chickens that were mutilated. Um, I'm not sure if they were theirs or not, but it was right around the same time period. Two of them had the heads removed and one had the feet removed. Um, so, you know, that was happening. You know, when, when I found out about that, I was like, oh, yeah, that droning sound we heard last summer. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> so I don't know if there's a connection, but anyway. <laughs> Nothing is safe, even your chickens. That's so crazy. The the droning sound, it always makes me wonder when people uh, question, you know, the electrical or they say, oh, it's just ball lightning. When historically some of these strange entities have been able to harness electricity or at least, you know, like in our past, we, we, we have many accounts of this culturally. And the strange thing is that, you know, we actually operate just on a little bit of electricity. We, it enables us to make decisions and like do things like brush our teeth in the morning. And so if that's a little electricity, just imagine what a lot of electricity and some strange entity that can en enhance that. But I wanted to jump really quick to uh, what is it with punk rock and UFOs? Because I was so blown away when I realized that, yeah, you're a member of a pretty cool tribute band. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ramones Alive, Ramones True. Yeah, I don't know. I, I love the Ramones music, um, always have. Uh, it's kind of got me through college. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's a connection, but except for Blink-182, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, think, I think the punk rock spirit is one where, you know, punk rockers are kind of outside the box and they're willing to consider alternatives and things that are sort of... Uh, you know, against the establishment or, or uh, maybe rub people the wrong way, like they're willing to look at things a little bit differently. So in that respect, it's similar, I think, because punk rock is, you know, kind of an innovation, if you will. And so people who are into that music and into innovative ideas and into expression that isn't mainstream expression, I think those same people are the people who are very often are open to uh, thinking outside the box when it comes to the paranormal as well. So maybe that's it. Amen to that. I agree with that a hundred percent. The artistic mind is a is a is a garden for these things. And the interesting thing about uh, your career, it's an amazing career. And not once, but twice, or even more, most likely. I mean, you, you left New Mexico. You saw some pretty amazing cases. I can't get away from these cases where it seems like these animals are drug off. And whatever's being done may be done somewhere else and they're brought back. There's machinery sounds. I mean, this case about the rancher that you saw is fascinating. Um, did you encounter anything else like that in your travels? Well, I mean, I'll say this. I'll go back to the, the Pecos horse. One thing that I'll add to that is just that, you know, they, um, they found the horse in three to four foot thick grass with no footprints, like the grass had not been disturbed anywhere around the horse. And this was also a location that I believe was 
at least 100 feet, if not 100 yards away from where the horse was normally. So it was in their field, but it was you know, a different location where you wouldn't expect the horse to be almost as if it were dropped from the sky. And that is something that's, that's fairly consistent on the Sherman Ranch and a lot of these other cases, too, where uh, it, you know, there's obviously there's no footprints, there's no tire prints, and it seems like whoever did it um, dropped the animal, like, like the Shermans, for example. We'll, we'll get into that for sure. But basically, you know, Jerry, there was one case, uh, a couple of them, where, you know, they, they found a mutilated cow in the snow where its footprints had stopped, uh, you know, like 50 feet or more away. But then the cow was in the snow and there were branches all around it as if, as if it had been dropped through the branches, but there were no cow prints to get it to that point. So there was the only explanation was that it was a drop from above. So, that's a pretty consistent theme. And speaking of stuff that's dropped from above, I will share with you another case from New Mexico. This actually happened in the late 70s, but it was something that I revisited with the, um, with the physicist who uh, investigated it. Um, but there was basically a, there was a UFO case where, uh, this was again in northern New Mexico in, in 78, where a, a group of people uh, saw UFOs uh, go over um, a group of cattle and uh, and their homes and, and their cars and whatnot. And, and the next morning, um, the people on one particular truck, I believe there was a thin film, kind of a residue. And the scientists who investigated uh, found that it was mostly um, phosphorus and potassium, which was interesting. And then they also, what they did is they rounded up all the cattle uh, and they used an ultraviolet light and they found that five of these hundred or so headed cattle that had that where the UFO had flown over the night before, five of them had, they could tell through ultraviolet light, um, had the same thing on them that was phosphorus and potassium. And and I remember, and I forget the guy's name, but I know he told me, and this when I interviewed him in 94, he's like, you know, I, I he said he still had no explanation. He had no idea what it was or why, but that's what they found. Phosphorus and potassium. Whoa. Mm-hmm. A thin film of it, yep. Interesting. Okay, so let's fast forward. It's it's well let's let's back up and kinda actually let's let's bring bring up both of those topics, which is the ability to do this. It seems like whatever's taking place is freezing things in time or doing time travel or able to do omnipresence. Have any of the ranchers in New Mexico or in your the cases that you covered, did they hear the disembodied voices above their heads or any of the strange omnipresent phenomena? Well, yeah, T- Terry, Terry Sherman is the only one that I know of. I, I don't think anybody in New Mexico, in fact, I, don't, I think that was kind of a new one on me when, when Terry told me about that. And, and, when, and, and I, I think I'll talk about this a little bit and then I'll go back and I'll fill in the gap of how I got this story and how I got to Utah. But, but Terry, basically, when I first interviewed him, he told me that he wasn't going to tell me everything. Um, he couldn't. He just couldn't bring himself to tell me everything. And then, you know, by the time I got done with the interview, I was like, well, God, you told me so much that's blowing my mind here. It's, it's quite enough. Don't worry about telling me the rest. But one of the things he did tell me was that, yeah, that he was out in the field. He was with, I believe, his son and his nephew. His son was around 12 or 13. I think his nephew was a little older. And they did hear some, what you would call a disembodied voices, I guess, basically coming from above a tree, about 25, 30 feet above them. They heard a, and, and, and this story's been out there, so you've probably heard it, but, but it was, um, you know, two male voices. One was deeper than the other, and they were speaking some kind of foreign language. Terry described it to me as either, either like Russian or Klingon 
or something, and they heard this com- conversation, and then Terry says, you know, we can hear you, and then they heard, I believe it was just the deeper voice, like a laugh, like just this rolling laugh, haha, you know, and then, and then the voices continue their conversation. So, you know, and that's where you start to think, okay, well, was, was this something that was cloaked? Was this, you know, is it disembodied voice, or is it just a voice that really is in a body, but you can't see the body, and, you know, and there's an angular nature to all this, too, and, and, and it could be holographs. I mean, that's something that John Alexander looked into. We, we can talk more about that. But if you, if you want me to go back a little, I can take you to how I got the Utah and how I got the, how I got the Sherman Band story. Yes, please, because that's, I think, the, it, it's, so, it's such a good story. Yeah, can we, can we go into that, Zach? That would be great. Absolutely. Um, and I hope I'm not boring people because there's, there's more detail than I thought here. But, um, yeah, so anyway, so I'll take you back to uh, the fall of uh, 94. Again, my series of articles came out on September 18th and 19th of 94. And then the Larry Gardia story came out after that, and I did some other follow-ups. And, again, people started calling me because, you know, the stories came out. They were like, hey, I had this experience. I had that experience. So that was pretty cool. Um, but my experience at that time, personally, was that on September 28th of 94, uh, my youngest daughter was born, and uh, even before that, uh, Poncho, the guy who's funny about it, who rented his house to us in Pecos, had decided, well, he had ended this relationship with the woman in town in Santa Fe where he had been, been living for three years, and so he wanted back in the house. So I had to find another job, and, um, and you know, my wife wasn't working, and we, you know, we had one car. She was kind of stranded out there in Pecos with a droning sound nearby. Uh, but uh, so I, I just applied everywhere, everywhere that my uh, my wife was willing to go. And I had applied it to, so I, I used the editor and publisher Almanac and I applied it to Salt Lake Tribune. And when I went through my first series of applications to literally every newspaper west of the Mississippi, I had neglected to write the Desert News because it was listed in EMP, it was listed under the Salt Lake Tribune because the two papers had a joint operating agreement. So the Desert News was the Mormon-owned paper, as you know, that was the afternoon paper at that time. Uh, so I didn't see it at first. So I think it was, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe end of September, early October, and I was like, you know, I haven't gotten many calls. I, I got to get out of this house. What am I going to do? And there's calculations everywhere, which is cool, but I got to go. I got to get a job. <laughs> so, uh, you know, um, so I wrote the Desert News and, and got a call, and I remember being uh, at the paper that day, and I got a call from uh, Rick Hall, who's the city editor of the Desert News, and um, I had some calls, and I had some calls from, I know, a Montana paper, and I discussed with them for a little bit, and then they told me the salary, and I was like, oh my God, it was like less than I was making. I was making 14 an hour in New Mexico. I was, I'd been making $9 an hour in Virginia before that, and uh, New Mexico, a little bit of overtime, so I was able to survive. And then, so so Rick called me, and I was like, yeah, 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 how much are you going to pay me? <laughs> and, uh, and he told me the salary, and, uh, you know, before we really got into it, and, and I was just so, I was just blown away. I mean, Desert News paid really, really well. Uh, and I always joked, because I'm not learning, but I always joked that their salaries were good because um, their employees had to pay 10% tithing and support, you know, more than one wife. So, you know, probably wasn't true, but, uh, but they did pay very well. So I was very excited. So they flew me up to Salt Lake and this was in, uh, October, late October. And I uh, had a good interview. And in the interview, I told them about what I had been working on in New Mexico. I think I had sent some of those stories as writing samples. And like I said, being, being the enterprise reporter there for the last six months in, uh, 
Santa Fe is really what got me the job at the Desert News because it really, when you do long form writing and research like that, you're really able to show both your reporting and your writing chops. So they liked my work. They wanted to hire me. And I told them at that time, I said, you know, I'd love to look into UFOs or the paranormal. It's been happening in northern New Mexico and Colorado. I'm sure you guys have had cases here. And maybe that's something that the Mormon-owned paper would support because not, not every owner of every paper is going to support that. In New Mexico, the owner had something to do with Los Alamos National Laboratories. And so that was his sacred cow. In fact, they had just fired the guy who was covering Lanel because he did some expose on them uh, when I arrived there in 91. And so, but that was all he really cared about. He, he didn't care about UFOs and stuff. Uh, so that was cool. Whereas some, some more conservative publishers might say, oh, we're not going to touch that, right? So I figured I might have some support among the Mormon editors. They all just kind of like, well, you know, and, yeah, we'll be looking at, well, okay, yeah, maybe someday. Well, <laughs> so I go, okay, there was a lot of interest. So, so anyway, so um, I got the job, and um, my daughter was, my youngest was six weeks old when we moved. And I remember uh, coming into Salt Lake Valley, it was like uh, November November 15th of 94 was my first day there. And so, and, and Salt Lake had had a big snow on Halloween. We knew about that, about 12 inches. And so we had a, we had a U-Haul and my wife was driving behind me and we get into the Salt Lake Valley and we got to West Jordan where our hotel was, it was like the Super 8 or whatever that's still there. And you couldn't even see downtown Salt Lake because this big, huge wave of snow was just rolling in. And so I knew I was, I was in for it because we had had some tough winters in Pecos, but yeah. Uh, we were greeted by a huge snowfall in Salt Lake. And so I started working there covering the suburbs and um, didn't really go back to my editors and say anything about the paranormal UFOs because I was just happy to have a good job and didn't want to rock a boat or anything. But I did um, kind of just out of my own interest, I started looking into stuff. So I met uh, Mildred Beasley, who has long ago passed away now. She was in, I believe, her late 80s or mid 80s when I was there in 94. Um, but I think I, it was probably spring of 95 by the time I, I got to meet her, but I was covering the eastern suburbs and southern suburbs, and so it was fairly easy for me, which I did several times, to drop by uh, during the workday, you know, uh, going back to the office on an assignment and talk to Mildred for a while. And so she told me about and gave me a copy of uh, the Utah UFO display, which was Dr. Frank Salisbury's book mm -hmm. in the 70s, which was mostly about the Una Basin, and Joseph Jr. Hicks was his primary source. And so I read that. I was fascinated. And uh, Mildred and I talked about a number of cases, and you know, Mildred was the director of MUFON at that time for the state. Um, and so, you know, I, but I really kind of did it just out of my own interest uh, because the New Mexico stuff had, had such a profound impact on me. And then uh, I don't really think I had seen Mildred in a while. I don't think I really gave much thought to it until um, it was kind of sprung on me uh, June of 96. So I'd been there about a year and a half when the same editors came to me and said, uh, you know, hey, remember when we interviewed you? You said you were interested in covering UFOs and paranormal. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Uh, and they're like, well, you know, there's this movie, Independence Day, that's coming out on July 4th. And so we thought maybe you could localize, give us a local angle. Uh, maybe just research some cases here, you know, <laughs> like, oh, my God, this is great. So what have I been waiting for? So, um, yeah, so that was awesome. So I talked to so many people. I mean, I know there was a guy down in uh, southern Utah that I talked to. He was a MUFON guy. He told me about this case, which made it into the article about this, um, this egg-shaped craft that landed, and these two people that he interviewed um, saw some kind of creature come out of it, and... They looked later and they found footprints. This guy investigated, he found footprints like a three toed creature of some kind, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, which is pretty interesting. Sure. And, um, and, and, and 
really the place to go though was the innovation because I knew from Frank's book, and I actually I uh, had lunch with Frank Salisbury and he was great and uh, you know it was no problem getting a hold of Junior Hicks because he was in the phone book at that time. Now Junior Junior did really not want to talk, um, but I, I coaxed him into uh, talking to me. You know at length and and he did. I mean most of it was in the book and he gave me. Uh, uh, some leads on how to reach certain people. And I, I was out there for the whole day and, and then um, in the Uber Basin. And then late in the afternoon, I called him back just to thank him. And I just felt like I hadn't really gotten everything. You know, I got, I got a lot of stuff on uh, things that were in the book and things that had happened a while back. And it was going to be a fine story. But I was like, you know, Junior, um, you know, I just had one last question for you. You know, I just, none of this, I, I got to believe things have happened more recently. You know, is there anything more recent you can tell me about? Recent cases. And, um, and he paused for a long time, and then he says, well, and then he paused again. He says, you might want to call Gwen down at the bank. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm so glad I asked, because that was like a follow-up question. That was like the last thing I was about to go in. Like, are you, are you sure there's not something? And, uh, and, and I got it out of there, Matt. And this was after, you know, a previously very long interview. So, so I called Gwen. I mean, he told me a little bit after that uh but not a lot so i called gwen and i think um i think things you know i think it was meant to happen because uh they were they were really desperate at that time they had been out there for uh, over a year and a half and terry was just kind of at his wits end and didn't really know what to do and and um what i was able to bring to the table was my experience in new mexico because the first thing i told Gwen, and I did, I called her at the bank and I had a conversation with her while she was at the bank because she had, you know, she wanted to talk to Terry and see if it's okay. And I, I did come out later with a photographer, um, I think the next day or a couple of days later. But in that initial conversation, um, I kind of sold it because, you know, yeah, you probably, do you want to go to the newspaper and say all that? Uh, well, I was like, well, look, you know, I think this is important. I think people need to know about it. I think that this, this kind of thing has been happening all around the Unibasin for a long time. And if more people knew about it, you'd have more company. People would be sympathetic. But the main reason was that I had um, talked to Linda Moulton Howe quite a bit in New Mexico. And I knew that she, I knew about Bob Bigelow because she was working on a grant from the Bigelow Foundation at that time, um, working on academy relations, mostly to fund the necropsies that were done. And I knew that Bob Bigelow knew a little bit about him, um, just from coast to coast in my own research and knew that he had some money and he was very interested in UFOs. And I thought to myself and I told Glenn, I said, you know, because they were, I knew they were trying to sell the ranch. We're just trying to get off the ranch. I'm like, look, I, I, I think Bob Bigelow would be very interested in helping you guys out essentially in, in buying the ranch. And so that was kind of the, the trade off is that they agreed to tell their story, and I and, and also even before I came out and interviewed them, I gave Gwen a bunch of phone numbers of people in New Mexico ranchers that Terry could call, which I was told he did. I mean, he told me that uh, where he could just talk to some people who had similar experiences because it wasn't anything that they were, you know, um, used to. I mean, it was just out of the blue for them. I mean, you know, it started slowly, and you know, they had these circular impressions in the ground, and then this happened, and then you see UFOs, and these portals open up in the sky, and all of that, you know, it was pretty crazy, so, um, anyway, that's, that's basically how I got the story was, um, that I asked a follow-up question of, of Junior, and Junior, who, again, you know, kind of felt like he'd done this all before with a book, and really didn't want a lot of notoriety or anything, and, you know, it's like, okay, but at least he told me, and I think I did help out the Shermans, I mean, also, I mean, I know Bigelow paid them, 200000 for the ranch. I mean, he came in about three weeks after the article ran, and 
um, bought the ranch for, I think, 200000 which is less than Terry paid for it. So, um, in a sense, they got burned, but, you know, he was offered more, uh, Terry told me, um, by a family, and then there was also, like, a hunting club, and he didn't feel comfortable uh, selling the ranch to either uh, people with kids, or because they had two kids, you know, and they knew what they went through, um, or, or anybody who would be shooting at anything on the ranch. So he sold to Bigelow, and, of course, National Institute of Discovery Science had already been going for about a year, and Bigelow brought his people out there, and, and the rest is history, pretty much. Okay, so it's June 1996 and you meet the Shermans did you get to go out on the property was was that part of the oh yeah wow oh yeah yeah um yeah and I brought um Carmen Trosser was the um, photographer from the paper and she took a separate car even though it's like three hours from Salt Lake up a basement whatever it is something like that um and uh because we knew that she wasn't gonna be out there the whole time because I didn't want to I didn't want to go with the photographer and have to go back with the photographer because the photographer you know, 20, 30 minutes, you're done. Uh, but I wanted to get as much as I could. So, yeah, I was out there uh, probably three hours, two or three hours. Um, didn't have any weird experience myself. Um, but basically, I, you know, Terry took me on tour, and Gwen was there, too. Didn't meet the kids. But both Terry and Gwen were there. And uh, Terry did mostly talking. Gwen would chime in. And like I said, Terry told me, uh, you know, a lot of it was he was a little bit reluctant or hesitant to tell me. And he told me he wasn't going to tell me everything. And there were some things that, that came out later. There were also things that happened to them before they left the property that I got from other sources, including Ryan Layton and uh, Chris O'Brien and David Perkins. They had all been able to get interviews with the Shermans um, sort of after my initial article ran. And, and we did follow-ups too, but nothing for like the first month. And so they got new information as things happened. But but like, like for example, Terry never did mention the... Uh, the wolf, the wolf dog that's uh, uh, the dire wolf that's been talked about. Um, that I think he mentioned that to uh, David Perkins or maybe Ryan Lane. And, of course, it came out in, in, in the Colm Kelleher, George Knapp book. And, you know, there was more details. But there were certainly things they left out. But the things that they really did talk about and emphasize were the three types of craft that they were seeing. Uh, you know, the small box-like, they called like the Winnebago-type craft. It looked like a refrigerator-sized type thing. It wasn't huge, but, you know, about Winnebago size. And then um, this other craft that was like 30 or 40 feet long. And then there was the one that was like several football fields wide that was usually over the ridge. Um, and then, of course, the most startling thing, which I thought was so interesting, was, was these portals that opened up in the sky. And there were four of them. And they were always, uh, or up to four. And they were always sort of in the same location to each other. And there was like this, this Auburn light that was associated with them. And Terry, and looking through a scope primarily is what, how he's able to see it. And he described it that they opened like sort of the iris on a camera, you know, like spiraled open and then spiraled shut and craft would come out of them. And they saw as many as I think three craft going in and out of one at the same time. And they could also see like a different sky on the other side. And so, the fact that they were in the same location, so it's like, okay, what are we dealing with? Are we dealing with like a, a, an opening or a portal to another dimension or another reality? Or is this a cloaked uh, spaceship or craft or structure of some kind that has its own environment uh, uh, on the inside? And that's what we're seeing. So I, you know, I don't think anyone's ever answered that. But that was fascinating. And I thought that, you know, okay, Terry, maybe you're not telling me everything. And there are lots of... Lots of other things that are in the articles that he did tell me, but um, that that was what I was most 
most fascinated by for sure was the opening of the portals and the ships coming in and out, seeing a different environment on the other side. Yeah. How couldn't you be? That to me is like one of the most fascinating aspects of the entire ordeal, which kind of brings up, um, maybe there is some time manipulation. Did Terry have any thing that he thought these things might be able to time travel or that they were omnipresent or that they knew, you know, that they were able to stop time and do whatever they had to do? Well, I, I don't think at that point he was, he was making any, drawing any kind of conclusion like that. Um, he was definitely aware that the craft were aware of him, that, that he was being seen, he and his son or his nephew. Those were the three that were primarily on the ranch because, um, you know, they did have an incident he told me about where he and his son sort of saw this craft on the other side of the ridge and they kind of snuck up on it and surprised it and like waved at it. And then it flashed its lights uh, and they were pretty far away from it, but they, but it flashed its lights three times and then disappeared uh, but he took that as, you know, a signal to say, yeah, we, we see it, we see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also felt that, that uh, at that point, uh, by the end of June of 96, they had had just three cows that had been mutilated, and they actually were all essentially partially mutilated. I mean, you have no way of knowing what would have been done, but, the, but Terry felt like they had interrupted the mutilators. Um, and, and it was happening often during, uh, during the new moon, uh, and they definitely felt like, um, I mean, they could see the lights and when they saw the lights and when they saw the new moon, they had trouble with the cat. So in terms of, uh, yeah, in terms of time, and it, I, I don't think at that point anyway, uh, he had really thought it because he was still thinking, you know, is this, is this a government thing? And, and, you know, that's certainly logical to think that, um, at that point. Um, but I think, Obviously, the wealth of information that we know now, and, you know, if you watch the History Channel show and stuff, I mean, you've got to think, uh, and if you put it together with all the other research that's been done over the years, um, it, it seems obvious to me, especially with the, um, with, with the concept that, um, that the mutilations are sort of happening quickly, and, and, but, but no one sees it, and it's like, how could it possibly be done that quickly? And, and that gets to time manipulation, and that is something that, the Shermans sort of had experience with, which they kind of, they considered it to be poltergeist activity. But if you look at it, that might, and even though they didn't say anything about it, I think it obviously had to be in their minds, well, how could this happen in a given amount of time? Because they had several cases where, for example, um, Gwen came home, put the groceries up, went in the other room, came right back like a few minutes later, and all the groceries were out of the cabinets, back in the bags. Uh, that she had just taken them out of. You know, how did that happen? And if we think about that much, well, how does that happen? Okay, well, if you have the ability to stop time uh, and not be seen or, or come in somehow and do that and then leave by freezing time or working outside of time, well, then that kind of makes sense. And so if you look at that theory, it, it does maybe answer or address some of the things that happen to them, like even with the sun, um, Stacking a cord of wood, going inside, coming right back out and finding it a hundred yards away, stacked neatly in a pile, but not where he put it. Uh, and that's the whole trickster element that people talk about. And, and what I, you know, um, one of the theories that I've had that I don't think I've heard a lot of other people mention, but because, uh, there was always this sort of this, uh, mechanical sound under the ground as if there were, uh, something, you know, like some, like a bulldozer or some kind of machinery under the ground. And I've heard other people in the basement experience that. 
Um, my thinking was always, well, you know, that area is rich in minerals. So what if these are either extraterrestrials or other dimensional beings, or, and maybe that's the same thing uh, with a much higher technology and maybe the ability to bend light and time or certainly make themselves invisible or not seen by them, whatever it is they're doing. What if, what if they're here to extract the, the minerals because maybe they're not available on their particular planet and they are underground and there's been reports of UFOs going into Bottle, Ho- Bottle Hollow Reservoir behind the ridge and like disappearing, like going through the water. Maybe that's where they all come from because the Germans used to see these UFOs rise up above the ridge. Well, what's right behind the ridge? It's Bottle Hollow. So maybe they're coming out of the water and, that, and they're accessing something underground and maybe what you've got is you've got a bunch of ET miners who, uh, you know, are equivalent of our construction workers. I mean, imagine if we sent a team of construction workers to uh, Mars, for example, and maybe there was some lower life form there, and after a 12-hour shift, the construction workers, the miners, would get bored, and maybe they would go, hey, let's mess with these animals over here. Yeah, this would be fun, you know. <laughs> so my theory is like, you know, when the voices and just the poltergeist activity could just be somebody messing with them, you know. Somebody who's far away from home and just worked a long shift and they know that they have the ability to manipulate and they're, they're just messing with us. So that's, that's, I've always wondered if, if, if the minerals, if mining, if, if that's kind of what's going on, possibly. Uh, but there are just so many aspects to it, including, uh, you know, again, in New Mexico, there were a lot. I, I didn't hear this as much in the Uyuna Basin, but there was a lot. There was some, but there was a lot of um, black helicopters seen, and that happened in Colorado, too. But what I always, again, getting back to sort of the holographic nature, which is something that John Alexander has looked into, uh, you know, he was interested in that. It's like these black helicopters. Well, okay, is, is, it the, is it the government trying to catch up with the aliens and see what they're doing? Is it the government trying to make us think that it's the government doing it and not aliens or whatever you want to call it, other dimensional beings? Or is it, is it a holographic representation of something else? So are we seeing it as helicopters because they want us to see it as helicopters because that'll make more sense to us and we won't question it when it's really something else. So there's just so many, so many questions. And that's the thing. Um, you know, there's uh, David Perkins. You really need to get him on your uh, podcast. Okay. Uh, and I, I have him on Facebook. I'll, I'll, I'll put you in touch with him. But um, David Perkins is one of the people that I interviewed when I was doing the stories in Santa Fe. And he sort of found himself, he actually, um, he's like in the 70s now, he went to Yale at the same time that George W. Bush did. They were classmates. In fact, he can tell you some stories about George W. if you would like that as well. <laughs> but he was living in uh, the, I think it was called, was it Libre? The, the commune in uh, southern Colorado in the mid-70s. And he, he started investigating, and he got started because he was driving home to the commune one day in 75, and he saw this mutilated cow on the side of the road, and he thought it was odd and kind of investigated. And then, so then he went into the sheriff's office and inquired about it. And then he found out that he and his other quote unquote hippie friends from the commune were the number one suspects. <laughs> so, and, but anyway, David's comment to me in, in the 90s was that, you know, he, when he first started looking into it in the 70s, he thought that, well, I'll just investigate this and I'll get to the bottom of it. And I know Linda Moulton House said the same thing when she started, oh, I'm going to investigate this and I'll get to the bottom of it. You know, and, and then David was like, by the time 94, when I was interviewing him, he was a halftime resident in uh, Santa Fe at the time. So he's going back and forth to Santa Fe and called And he's like, you know, I, I don't know if we'll ever get to it. There's just too much to it. You know, and he looked at it from, an environmental standpoint, and that was sort of his focus because he, a lot of the calumulations and helicopter sightings and everything else, uh, at least in the 70s, had taken place sort of near 
like um, nuclear sites or where there was a uh, bomb detonated, things like that. So maybe they were investigating the um, effects of the environment by taking certain sensitive organs from the cattle. And that makes sense. And that, that could certainly be part of it. I've always thought too, I wondered if it had something to do with the nourishment for the beings or creatures. Like if they are, for example, if it's a mining operation in the Basin and they, and they've got to eat and there's something about the, rectum and genitals of a cow that have certain enzymes that their body needs who are we to say you know uh maybe that's what's going on so you know but but yeah they're just they're just endless questions and, and that's how you know i kind of i left the field because i left journalism and i went on to screenwriting and i'm still very very curious but it, there is a certain level of frustration if you're a researcher into this because it really never ends i mean that's what david said to me before he's like uh he's like oh one more sighting one more mutilation you know well, you know Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've seen hundreds. Yeah, you know, it just gets old after a while because what you really want is you really want some answers, and they just aren't forthcoming. So true. We're always left with more questions and answers, and that's if we get as, the most information as possible. So it's it's just an enigma. Thanks so much for coming on. I can't thank you enough, Zach. And I hope to talk to you very soon because there's there's so much going on and you're always doing so much it's awesome and i'm i'm amazed by uh all, all the stuff that you get done thanks for coming on and um is there anything else you wanted to uh, let our listeners know well i'll just say this because we didn't even get to astrology i'm an astrologer as well i'll just say this that i think the uh the COVID outbreak uh in january sort of uh, you can kind of trace it back to the conjunction of pluto and saturn in J- on january 12th of this mm-hmm, year mm-hmm. and i wanted to share that because that's something that astrologers have been talking about for a long time and when trump took out the uh iranian general uh Soleimani, i think was his name uh like on january 3rd or 4th of this year you know mm-hmm. um that we kind of thought, okay, that's the start of World War III because when Pluto and Saturn conjoin, especially in Capricorn, which only they only um, are conjunct each other like every 35 years, right? Mm-hmm. And so anyway, a lot of people have been speculating like five years ago, I was hearing people on coast to coast, astrologers would come and say, oh, well, 2020 is going to be a world war. It's World War III. Well, it didn't turn out, fortunately, to be a world war against each other, but we are involved in a world war. It's just that there's an invisible enemy, and we're all in it together. And what so I wanted true. to share is that uh, at the end of January of this coming year, 2021, Saturn finally pulls 10 degrees away from that Pluto conjunction. It went retrograde. It, it was. It made the conjunction in January. It came back in September and got within three degrees, and then we, we've seen a flare-up. But things are going to get much, much better starting at the end of January. So I just wanted to give you... Uh, hope from astrology that things are going to get a lot better uh, with this whole virus. So cool that, that thank you for that. That's the kind of benevolence we need. And I'm so glad that uh, you did that. Thank you. Well, um, all you the bet. best to you. I hope you have a good holiday and, and, and we, we talk soon. Absolutely. Anytime. All right. All right. All the best, my man. Take care. Well, there you have it. From the horse's mouth, some of the most amazing cattle mutilation tales from New Mexico and Utah that you can shake a stick at. Zach really does get into it and knows his subject matter very well. His contributions are, well, I can't thank him enough. And, you know, it's interesting that he mentioned that maybe these are ET miners. Talk about a new theory. And... I didn't say this during the interview, but I did have an experience, if anybody's read my book, that uh, I did encounter something that did not quite appear human, was too skinny, 
was too tall for how skinny it was. And it did have a little red light on its uh, hat. It apparently did kind of look like a miner, actually, and had a flannel shirt and kind of dressed up like a person, but wasn't pulling it off. And when he said E.T. Miner, that really struck a chord with me. Maybe there is something to that. Then again, there's so many theories. Uh, Anything Zach says, though, it's definitely worth noting. Can't thank him enough. Thank you as well for listening. And until next time, keep your eyes to the skies, feet on the ground, but don't forget to take a look around. Off in my time machine, third eye feeling like an evisine. Blast off, blast off, blast off, blast off. Come blast off in my time machine, third eye feeling like an evisine. Blast off, blast off, blast off.